welcome back and despite giving us such a hard time last time dr claire craig has agreed to come back for the third time where we're unpacking the details of her excellent book on the pandemic don't i don't waste hours watching the government inquiry uh, i've read this and i think that's uh, probably much more succinct and useful claire thank you for coming back thanks for having me back john i've got a hat check now indeed indeed yeah so we've got we've got a few beliefs still to 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 uh, to go through claire if you don't mind and belief seven was this whole thing about asymptomatic spread um one in three people with covid spread it while asymptomatic i mean where did this come from how was it perpetuated for so long the questions just gush out really i mean what was your thinking on it um, yeah, there really, there was so much about it that was sort of so much obviously couldn't be true to me. And so you sort of go back to what did asymptomatic mean? What does asymptomatic mean? And, and the Chinese researchers were using it to mean something completely different at the outset to how we understood it here. So in their studies, when they were talking about asymptomatic, they meant not hospitalised literally you know you could be really sick but if you weren't hospitalized then you were being treated as asymptomatic um and obviously we were thinking it meant that you were perfectly healthy which is really quite quite different um and if we go back much much further than that we go right back to 1910 again and back to charles chapin and who was that public health officer in providence in new york in Ireland. <laughs> yeah he wrote the sort of book on public health that became you know, the, the public health Bible somehow, despite it, despite it being full of these broad brush statements and despite him concluding it saying, I've made lots of broad brush statements here and probably some of them aren't true, but you know, it's the best we've got for now, a hundred years ago. And we've not <laughs> improved on it. Yeah, so because he had this, this hypothesis he wanted to push about close contact transmission and about everybody's saliva being revolting and horrible and spreading diseases because he was a little bit OCD himself. He had this problem with influenza because influenza clearly doesn't spread through close contact because it had been known for hundreds of years before then that an influenza epidemic comes on like that and you suddenly have a lot of sick people all at once. And he couldn't explain his theory. And so what he came up with was this idea that the world must be full of people who are spreading influenza without realizing that they're sick so he came up with this myth of asymptomatic spread to cover himself because he'd created this myth that it was all close contact transmission um, and actually what he says in his book at one point is that you can absolutely find bacteria which is what they were mainly focused on then didn't have the ability to look at viruses you could find bacteria in aerosols in the air but and so then he had to say but there must be something about that bacteria that doesn't spread disease like there's not enough of it or it's just not virulent enough like so he's making excuses even though the evidence is there that it's in the air because he just really wants to push this hypothesis because he was you know really evangelical about it well you don't want a few facts to fit in the way of a good hypothesis oh, that's right that's you know right. They, they have to be rammed in and distorted yeah. and made to fit it's it's the classic excuse scenario isn't it yeah. so w w word is that uh, that mary mallon was a really good cook and uh <laughs> apparently apparently i've been reading about this our peach desserts apparently were the best in new york 
And of course, she's known to history as Typhoid Mary, uh, round about, what, 1900, 1910. Do you think, and, and most people I know about her, but she, she was spreading typhoid, hence the name, <laughs> um, And but she was asymptomatic. She was kind of a, of a reservoir. Do you think there was an over-extrapolation from her case? I think that that is almost certainly it. And he does mention her in his book as well. And um, that was such a newsworthy item. Like people were all talking about this awful, awful situation and and the ethics of it as well. You know, what do you do when somebody is spreading disease and killing people ultimately, but is otherwise healthy? You know, how, how does a society deal with that? That was really challenging. But the thing with typhoid is that the bacteria has this special way of hiding from the immune system that's kind of unique, unique to that salmonella that just, just you can't extrapolate from that to every other disease it's a special function of salmonella that you can have this asymptomatic carrier status and it hides away in the gallbladder from what i remember doesn't it i can't i can't remember to be honest out from time to time i don't remember that from somewhere never mind never mind yeah but you know ultimately it results in it coming out of her gut mm, mm. Um, and and it's not true for other illnesses you know there isn't this reservoir of virus in healthy mm. people that's not a thing and so the the i guess the second important point in time for this myth of asymptomatic spread happened with the invention of the pcr test so the pcr test was invented in the 1980s but didn't really take hold till the 90s and then when it did take hold in the 90s you could start to detect teeny tiny amounts of virus that was not consequential and extrapolate from that to think that it was. So if you look up all the sort of research papers on asymptomatic respiratory disease, nothing happens until the PCR comes along and then everyone's talking about it like it's an important finding. But remember when we were talking about testing last time, Mm. You can set up PCR testing to detect virus particles in a single aerosol from the air that could just easily be breathed in and be of no consequence whatsoever to the person who's breathed it in. It's just dirty air that's in them. It's not a disease. Of course, we live in a milieu of viruses and bacteria all the time, you know, you know and there's millions of virus, virus. I mean, and, you know, if you want to focus on any particular irrelevant virus, and throw a load of money at the studies well hey hey presto you might find it you know it's uh yeah absolutely and i think people really have lost sight of quite how amazing our immune system yeah. they really are amazing they're constantly mm. um evolving and changing and protecting us from all sorts of rubbish that's being thrown at us and even in babies, you know, babies after the, sort of when they've been weaned from mum's milk, they're not protected by her antibodies anymore. They've got this naive immune system, right? It hasn't seen all this stuff. It hasn't quite learned how to do it the way that we're constantly learning. And most of the time, most of it, babies are absolutely fine. You know, they catch little things and one after another and they, they sort of learn that, uh, you know, they learn about the specifics. But mm. without learning the specifics, they're still healthy and and so you have to sort of bear that in mind and it is astounding you know it is awe-inspiring how amazing our immune systems are Mm. and people have stopped talking about it and then become fearful of one of a multitude as you say of things that that you know potentially attacking us you think well is it really attacking if they're just all in the air all the time 
the immune system's good for literally nine billion different types of antigen, apart from one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you, for that, you need a vaccine. Yeah. For that, you need lockdowns. For that, you need... Ma it's just absurd when you think of it in context. Yeah. And when I guess so, the other side of it is the immune system is beyond our understanding, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot we know about it and what we've known about it has changed over time. But there's a lot we don't know about it. Really, there's a huge amount we don't know about how it works. And so coming along with a sledgehammer and thinking that you can fix it is a not clever thing to do because it has consequences. I was reading there might even be quantum effects in, in immunity, whatever that means, but uh, it just shows that we are really uh, j just paddling around in the, in, in the shallows, uh, d despite you being a pathologist. And uh, uh, yeah, and I think there was a bit of human arrogance in this as, as well, really, uh, Claire. You know, uh, if, if an infection came without a traceable source, then, you know, I, I can't say, well, well I, you know, authorities can't say, well, I don't know where that infection came from. They have to make something up. Um, yes, yes, that there is so much truth in that. And that, that also like, really undermined Charles Chapin's um, whole book. Mm -hmm. And people were saying to him, well, we know that people, you know, we, we see people who are sent home when they're well enough with diphtheria from the hospital, but they've still got diphtheria and nobody catches it. Or when, you know, they've just had tons of examples of people who were sick, surrounded by family and friends who were not getting sick with a whole variety of diseases. And he even what he did with that is he sort of said, well, take scarlet fever, say, you know, there are a lot of children who are going around who aren't that sick with that scarlet fever. So that's probably asymptomatic spread too. Like, well, no, they, they're a little bit sick, actually. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just constantly trying to shoehorn things into a into a mess that suits when, when actually that's not how science should be done. You know, you have to sort of take a step back from your biases and see what's going on and observe and measure. Mm. It's and interesting. I, I'm quite old now. When I was a young staff nurse, I worked with the, uh, the generation of consultants that, that went through the war. And um, they, they were trained maybe in the 1940s, 50s. And they, they diagnosed largely on clinical grounds. Mm -hmm. And then I remember, you know, there's quite a clear change about late 80s. And uh, we had this new generation of consultants coming through and it was test that, what that numbers that. You know, not saying all that stuff's wrong, it's brilliant. But, you know, maybe this sort of quantification in this testing has, has, has taken over, you know, how ill is this patient is maybe the, more, the, the, mo the most fundamental question to, to ask. And, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And... Um, and yeah, but the testing is, you're right, the testing was sort of put on too high a pedestal, really. And, yeah. that, and that led to a lot of the problems with the beliefs about asymptomatic spread. So the, the key papers at the beginning were ones where there had been tons and tons of testing. So either in China or in Italy, there was one place in Italy called Vaux, where they tested the whole town and they did it twice. And they found occasional positives where... Um, the two people who had no symptoms and had positives had, had you know, been in a cafe together or whatever. They said, well, this is asymptomatic spread. But neither of them ever got sick. Like, these are just random positives that you will get. You will get a tiny proportion that are positive if you're testing thousands of people. And you mustn't extrapolate from that to make huge assumptions about the spread of disease. Yeah, and the, the other thing that happened that, that I found slightly mind-boggling, actually, is that there were tons and tons of papers written about asymptomatic spread. 
And when you actually broke it down, the majority of them were written about people who had no symptoms but had a positive test result with no evidence of spread of any kind or no attempt to look at spread. Just these, these people exist. You're like, okay, well, that's proven nothing. And then you look at the, the, the other half and they were mostly meta-analyses. So meta-analyses, just like being produced and reproduced again and again. And you go down to which papers they were referencing and it was the same tiny handful of papers that were being recycled yeah. into this sort of claimed body of evidence that just yeah. didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, and there was, one, there was one particular paper that really it all hung from, which was this um, paper about the Malaysia outbreak from the religious festival, where um, there were two situations where it sounded like there may have been minor symptoms after, you know, after people had come back. Um, and I wrote to the author of that paper to ask questions like, you know, how many people did you test? Because that's fundamental to understanding this. Mm -hmm. And she wrote about the first time, but the second time I've just not had replies from her. And really, I can see why she might have gone a bit quiet, because literally the whole world changed their behaviour on the back of what she wrote. Mm -hmm. And that's slightly terrifying for her mm -hmm. I imagine I, I um, would imagine so <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, it, but if you do get it wrong it would be good to sort of le so. at least add nuance to your yeah. response so interesting just a simple translation error on the meaning of asymptomatic because mm. you know medics in the UK we try we try and use terminology very accurately so asymptomatic a without literally it means completely without symptoms but Mm, Clearly, yeah. it is not what the Chinese mean, and it does sound like the Chinese definition is pragmatically much more useful as well. And I mean, yeah. I, I, can, I can actually remember Chris Whitty talking about this. He said, with asymptomatic spread, it will be confirmed if we later find people who were completely asymptomatic and yet develop antibodies. That's right. He did and, say uh, that. But, but, but then when that didn't happen, he didn't seem to go back and say, oh, you, you know that day when I said, this, well, to tell you the truth, these people haven't been developing antibodies and they never got sick, so really they never had it at all. Uh, I mean, so I mean there was no but correction was, as they went along. No, and he was really bigging that up at that press conference. Yeah. He was saying, you know, what's, we've got this situation, there's a lot we don't know at the moment, and we're getting these antibody tests out and they're going to make all the difference in the world because they're going to show us how big a problem this really was, how many people have really had it. And then the results came through and then silence. Um, and, you know, I could see how if they are so stuck in their belief system, if they really believe that this was a big problem and like most of the world was believing it at the time. So you can see how that they'd be swept along. Then you'd say, well, hang on a minute. If this antibody test isn't showing what we are expecting, can we blame the test? And I think that might have been what's going through their minds is they're thinking, well, the antibody test obviously wasn't picking up these weaker things. But it's not true. I think the antibody tests are really sound, actually, at least the ones that were being done in the UK were. So if you look across the world, there's quite a lot, big range in the types of results you got from antibody mm. testing. And I don't think that it was all done in the same way. But the way that the public health bodies were doing it in England was really reproducible. Um, and I think yeah. it was a really good measure of who had it in each wave up until recently when I'm not so convinced, to be honest. But I think for the pre-Omricon ones, I think it was a pretty good measure. Mm -hmm. How long 
scientifically speaking now do you think someone is infectious for before they go on to develop symptoms and antibodies is there a pre-symptomatic um so that's a really period? important question isn't it and, and we should have really clarified that before but i think it's really important to separate out asymptomatic people who never get infections and who yeah. you know, which was the excuse for lockdowns and and you know and separated people and mask wearing all of that was based on the premise that healthy people were not healthy and then this pre-symptomatic window so that exists right you know people will people who go on to develop symptoms at which point they become very infectious mm. have a few days prior where they the infection has begun and so you sort of you know you're on the up exponentially in terms of the amount of virus that's yeah. there and then of course once you start coughing that's when you're really producing volume of virus but hypothetically there is a little moment in time when you're not quite coughing and there's still a lot of virus that's being produced in your breath um and so you know that that is a hypothetical problem but there are two there's two important things to know about that one is that the story that really um everybody focused on around pre-symptomatic spread was a story about a chinese businesswoman who came to a meeting in germany and she started a little COVID outbreak there. And it was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine. One of the authors was Christian Drosten. And they reported that asymptomatic spread was clearly this big problem because of this woman causing a few people to be sick. And they, this paper was really picked up on. They, in retrospect, a journalist thought well, you know we should look into this a bit more because they didn't give very much detail about what's going on with her and they found her and they interviewed her she was really ill she'd gone to this meeting completely dosed to the nines because she had a fever and she couldn't get through it in any other way and they hadn't interviewed her and they they did have a supplementary as um, bit of that paper about her illness but they have never corrected it they've never retracted it it's still there so still in the literature oh yeah yeah so that, I think that's really important to note that that was a lie. Um, and then second of all, the question you have to ask is, how much of an impact does that little window of time have on the overall trajectory of a wave? Because, you know, if the wave's going up and away and, and doing its own thing because it spread through the air, which is what I think is happening, then it, there's nothing you can do about any of it anyway. It's just, it's on its own trajectory. But if you want to sort of believe in the close contact thing, you could still question that and say, well, how much of an impact does it have? And there was one paper from Singapore where they, you know, they'd, they'd had a sort of smaller outbreak. So it was easier to measure these things than places where it had gone everywhere. And they reckoned that 7% was down to pre-symptomatic spread. So 7%, you know, that was the only number anyone ever put on it. Still surprisingly high, I would have thought. But... I think it is surprisingly high. I, think, I don't think I entirely believe it as 7%, but there it is. But it's the only study we've got, yeah. But the point yeah. is, even if it were 7%, that's not worth locking the country down for, mm. is it? No, incredible. I mean, and I love the way that you summarise in your book, Claire, uh, top three myths. One in three people with COVID never develop symptoms. Myth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People who uh, never develop symptoms uh, have made others sick, myth. Mm -hmm. um, an, or an organism in the respiratory tract that uh, never enters a cell is still an infection. Yeah, yeah. Not true. And the other thing that that brought out really is, we mentioned Chris Whitty there, 
I love your concept of high priests, those mm-hmm. who cannot be questioned. And, you know, the, the, the way that whole international thinking was distorted to believe in these gurus, these fonts of wisdom, these oracles of Delphi, yeah. <laughs> these, yeah. these high priests, rather than the consensus of scientific opinion. Yeah. It's just, just yeah. incredible. One thing that was really strange about it was that the, the sort of old school science, you know, the body of science had been abandoned. And so what, what Western civilization is largely predicated on. Yeah, which meant that <laughs> yeah. the people who were sort of, you know, outsiders, as it were, who were saying, hang on a minute, this doesn't seem right, yeah. could then go to this body of literature and say, look, this is why I'm saying this. And whereas the people who were the high priests were basing their, their, what they were saying on really nothing. They had nothing to back them up. They were just on a foundation of sand. So there was an interesting kind of power dynamic there because you think, well, if we give this long enough, I think we're going to be all right here because we've got all this evidence. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, the high priests, I think it was a really fundamental part of what happened because they were not allowed to be questioned. They were just people you could not question. Even when they were contradicting themselves, that was all all right. They were still always, you had to assume everything they said was Contradicting true. themselves, contradicting each other. Yes. And um, my favourite high priest moment was when Bill Gates was interviewed in the Natural History Museum. Is, and he, do- is he a doctor, uh, Claire? Is he medically no, qualified? He, I don't think he has a degree. Oh, right. Anything. So he's not a doctor. Right. No. Okay, okay. Yeah, just... <laughs> so they had him under the the... the blue whale skeleton right and they had indicating science yeah they had this enormous screen with his face on it like he was a huge you know god and then the bbc presenter interviewing him went really far away from him so there's this like little dwarfy ant man with a mic and this huge face by the it was ridiculous it was just you know it was laughable when you see it for what it is, it's embarrassing. He should be embarrassed. Reminds you of a screen in certain novels that could be mentioned, doesn't it? Mm, mm, totally. Yeah. yeah. Right. Moving on, Claire. Belief eight. Lockdowns saved lives. Right. Now, this one, I think, is so obvious now that, you know, I just... <laughs> because it was a point in time where I could tell you that the maths of the wave said that it was over for that variant but people are not that you know mathematically literate and they wouldn't know how to question that and they say well that's not what i'm hearing elsewhere claire so i'm not going to believe you but all i need to say now is look at all of these waves all over the world that are always the same period of time and now try and persuade me that the lockdown saved any lives it's as simple as that you know it's the longer that time on, the simpler the argument has become. It really is and, an easy one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, nevertheless, people still believe it. And some, some people are still arguing that we should be going back into one now. I mean, thankfully, they're not getting in the airtime that they were getting before. But Thankfully, yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember back in 2020, the World Health Organization, I think it was about March, fairly early saying containment is possible. You know, they actually yeah. believe that this, this could be... Put, the genie could be put back in, back in the bottle somehow. I mean, just... It, it, it was always madness. It really, really was. And actually, one doctor described it quite well to me. He said, if you imagine a bath of water and you drop some food colouring into it, and if you're really, really quick, 
you might be able to scoop it out with a cup. But if you're not that quick, then it's too late, isn't it, Zibra? <laughs> and of course, we do this every time we do a lesson on diffusion for the students, don't we? We get a beaker of water and we put in a drop of ink and uh, it, it, it goes everywhere. I mean, I, th I think partly there was some internal consistency in the lockdown idea. If you accepted unequivocally, which of course we've now disproved, the, the close contact model, if that had been completely true, would lockdowns yeah, so, still have worked to an extent? So that I think is a really, really interesting and important question because you know now that they've been done, right? Now that lockdowns have been done, they have become a potential tool to be used in the future. Yeah, you have to say right. We've got to sort of have that conversation about why they are always wrong. Frankly, so they were always wrong from an ethical perspective and from a you know a, a, a sort of Western democracy freedom perspective anyway. But just in terms of could they ever work, that's a separate question to the ethics. And in terms of could they ever work, I don't think they could. In that. If you've got, um, you know, respiratory viruses are airborne. If you've got something that's airborne it, and, and spreading the way that influenza and SARS-CoV-2 spread, there really isn't anything you can do about them spreading. There really, really isn't. And that applies no matter how deadly they are. So the argument about, but it's so deadly, if what you're doing is going to have no impact, you don't do it, regardless of how deadly it's, it's it is. It's totally relevant. Yeah. So that's that side of the argument. The other side of the argument is, OK, what if we did have something that did only spread close contact? And the example we've got for that would be gastroenteritis, where you've got fecal-oral transmission. So you have to have close contact for spread. So we can say, well, you know, we've, we've done the experiment now. We can see what happens to gastroenteritis. And we had um, a record of how many people turned up at the accident emergency department with gastroenteritis over the course of the lockdown. And it, it, it's absolute perfect correlation with mobility, right? So, you know, you see as it falls off, as people stopped moving around, their mobile phone data shows that people were at home, then the number of people turning up drops. But it doesn't drop to zero. It kind of halves, right? So for the period of lockdown, you can slow the transmission of a fecal-oral virus to about half of what it otherwise would be which means that you're not preventing a wave, but you could slow a wave. So or, then- Or, or put, well, de delay it kick, it, kick it down the road a little way. Well, I mean, it would still be going on because you've still got yeah. half the spread. Oh, I see, it's yeah. Still, yeah. You know, you can't, it's not zero, it's half the spread, so it's slower. And, and the, the, the thing is then that the models of close contract transmission suggest it would take 14 weeks to reach a peak as it got into every corner of the rural parts of the country, and then it would peak and decline. So if you've got something that's going to take you 14 weeks to peak and then 14 weeks to decline, so you're already in, you know, six months territory, how much slower do you want it to be? Because I don't want it to be any slower than that and to destroy the economy for something that's inevitable because it's passing through anyway. Yeah, you, you, can't, you can't stop it. You can just, yeah. Yeah, so you don't want to lock down for a year to slow something that would have taken six months so that it takes yep. 12 months. You know, you, that, that's completely mad. So actually, even at both extremes, there isn't an argument for doing it. Doesn't. And there's a human arrogance here as well, isn't there? You know, we can conquer nature. We can control nature. We can control 
you know, yeah. it's just the arrogance is, is, is absurd. I think what's almost more absurd is the people who were pretending they could do that are still in positions of power and yeah. still yeah. being looked up to. That's yeah. the absurd bit. Everybody can see that they've, yeah. they've been kind of canutes of the age yeah. and yet and they're not embarrassed and they're not stepping down, they're not resigning. Like, that's the problem. Yeah. They're still there, blagging yeah. it. Yeah. Pretending he all was good. And of course, Canute knew he couldn't stop the waves. No, I know, he, I know. He, he, he was actually showing how fallible he was. So yeah. maybe some politicians who are watching, and I know lots of politicians do watch, um, <laughs> if they could learn something from Canute, that might be a good idea. If we don't learn from the mistakes of history, maybe we're destined to repeat them. I mean, we've got other things we could talk about here, Claire. Sweden. Great Barrington mm -hmm. Declaration, mm -hmm. maybe just a few words yeah. on, on those two. So um, Sweden, I think, was, you know, a really, really important country because they, I mean, partly because they were the control group, but partly because they defied what was going on everywhere else. I mean, that's hard. It's hard to do that. And Agnes Tegnell, who was the guy who made that happen, you know, really deserves all the praise he gets for that really really does and it's been interesting how over time as it was became you know quite quite clear that sweden were doing really well that people started to claim they hadn't had a proper lockdown that they had lockdown people had done it voluntarily that those kinds of arguments and it's just not true you know people went to visit and they had all this video footage of people out in the shops in the cafes and the restaurants enjoying life in a normal way and, you know, the idea, the sort of lie that they sort of had a pseudo lockdown is just a lie. You know, they didn't. And, and the virus passed through there as, a way, as it passed through everywhere else. And it peaked and declined as it did everywhere else. Um, so, yeah, I think Sweden is a really, really important case. And it's, um, it's interesting with Sweden now that um, people are pointing to it as the exception regarding excess deaths. And I think there's, there's three reasons why they're an exception regarding excess deaths. And one of them is because they didn't lock down, right? So if you are um, psychologically stressed, there's very, very strong evidence base that that increases your risk of heart disease. And we saw in the UK, young people having excess mortality in autumn 2020, non-COVID excess mortality from autumn 2020, that I think was related potentially to that psychological stress and all of the fear that people went through, that the Swedes did not get put through. And then the Swedes actually have a very low baseline cardiac um, mortality, which people confuse because they look at the overall figure and say, well, it looks about the same. But if you break it down, the people who are dying of heart disease in Sweden are predominantly over 80. And right. they don't have the sort of younger deaths that we have. Um, and obviously you have to die of something. So we can't get over, overly excited about dying over 80 of something. So the excess deaths in Sweden now, are they higher or lower or what? Oh, well, they've still got some excess, um, some. but it's but they they're, they're the sort of lowest and, Low, and lowest you, range. Yeah, can sort yeah. of age standardize it and make it look like it's not particularly yeah. much problem. So <clears throat> Sweden have, I think, through a synergistic thing with those different factors all playing a role, um, they've come out the best. Mm. I mean, I think there was I think there was in the very very early days there was some panic in Sweden where um, people from care homes weren't admitted to hospitals. Uh, yeah, that, was, there that was resulted a in, in care homes. Uh, you know, in the very early stages where, you know, I understand end of life drugs were used. Yeah. 
when, yeah. when we, we might yeah. not choose to. But I think that was very short-lived. I think they got on top of that panic really quite quickly and then uh, it, it made a lot more sense. And just briefly, the Great Barrington Declaration, Claire, what was that about? So the Great Barrington Declaration, I think, you know, I, the, what they were trying to do there is really laudable and they, they were coming from the place of close contact transmission is the be-all and end-all, but making the argument that actually that doesn't mean that you, you know, you can, you can actually protect people who are most vulnerable by putting measures in place for them without closing down society. And so I think as a compromise position, it was a really, really important proposal, but I'm not sure that it really would have made a, a difference. You know, I think, I think you didn't need to do that because it was going to spread anyway. And one, one person based on that close contact argument made a really interesting argument, which is that um, if, if the virus is going to spread the way that we were told, so everyone's susceptible, it's going to work its way through the population, then what you want to do is you want to have the people who are youngest and have the strongest immune system on the front line, spreading it to each other and getting to herd immunity as quickly as possible while you've got your frail and your elderly as far away from that contact as possible. But what you do by putting everyone at home is you are making everybody frail and elderly. And then you haven't got that hierarchy anymore. Everybody's going to be exposed at the same rate on the same journey towards herd immunity. And I think that is a, such an important point that never got made, even though it's not close contact transmission. But, you know, the fact is that was the mindset people were in and they weren't hearing these important arguments. So top, top three myths. Um, reducing contact would reduce spread. Myth. Viral waves only peak with a change in human behaviour. Definitely myth. Predicted death estimates uh, modelled on extreme assumptions were realistic. Predictable death estimates modelled on extreme assumptions were realistic. Yeah. What does that one mean, Claire? Sorry, I haven't quite got that one. So it's just saying the modelling was wrong, right? You yeah. know, this kind of crazy half a million figure oh, that we were yeah. told is just plain wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I, I, lo I love the way that you try and explain the, 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 the things that happened in terms of the underpinning science, psychology and sociology. And, and you include one here called the sunk cost fallacy. Right. And, and, you know, when you, re when you read that chapter in the book, you think, yeah, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> It's just yeah. so obvious when you explain it. Well, what is the sunk cost fallacy? So it's this whole idea that you're, you know, if you have um, sacrificed something, that you don't want to make that sacrifice worthless by saying, "Oh, that was a mistake," and so you end up sacrificing more. So the kind of classic example is the the old car that you you keep spending more and more money on repairs, and you should have just cut your losses and bought a new one. Um, and so that was happening on all sorts of levels with with what went through. COVID that, you know, once you'd spent X amount of money on PPE, then, well, why don't we spend millions more and, and, and then millions on storing it? And, you know, you, you just get caught into these terrible traps of, of sort of a kind of bureaucratic juggernauts that you sort of set off um, on the, along the tracks without putting a pause or a brake button on them. It's just, just so much what we saw, isn't it? And I'm still yeah. seeing, you know, uh, you don't throw good money after bad. If you're, if you're digging yourself into a hole, stop digging. <laughs> it's yeah. just yeah. obvious yeah. things.
Yeah, I mean, one of the most frightening juggernauts in that regard, of course, was with the vaccines that, you know, that at the outset it was, well, you know, we don't know really what these products are. They're new. It's all we've got. We want to protect the vulnerable. 15 million doses to freedom. And then it was, oh, and then the next age group and the next age group and the next age group. And so we sort of saw early on, these are they're heading towards children. They're heading towards children. Why are they heading towards children? And people said, don't be ridiculous. They're not talking about children. You're just making it up. And then, of course, they start vaccinating children. And then, of course, we need to protect the children. You know, the, <laughs> people were just going along with the whole thing and, and they couldn't see their own contradictions in their arguments. And, and then the constant need for more and more boosters. It's just. Uh, yeah. Quite, yeah. Quite incredible. And so actually, I was quite relieved to see that news story this week about how much is being disposed of now. Like, you know, they, they, they don't, no longer trying to dispose of them into people's arms. They're the, yeah, they're the, 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 the disposing of them somewhere slightly safer now, like incinerators, which still not an ideal way to dispose of things. But uh, yeah, uh, belief, belief, nine, Claire, lockdowns are not harmful. I mean, just a bit of a lockdown. It's the big deal. I mean, uh, that's the that's a tricky one, isn't it? Because there were some people, especially people who are actually quite powerful, who loved lockdown. Mm. And still talk about what a lovely time they had. And they did like it's fine. They did, okay, but they seem to be completely blind to the idea that that was not the experience of a lot of people and that, you know, you can, it, it shouldn't take long to sit down and come up with examples of who lockdown would be bad. If you've got your own grouse moor, it's okay. You could go for a walk there every day on your private property, couldn't you? And maybe have a dip in your swimming pool and then go into your garden sauna. You know, what, what's to complain about? Yeah. I, you know, just, I mean, just imagine, you know, the single mum with two kids in an upper story flat. Mm. It's just, you know, the, the, the condescension is just... Yeah, completely unbelievable. And like even, you know, there's sort of all of that um, pressure that is on those sort of single parent families, which, ha you know, it's bad enough normally, actually, that, you know, you need to have other adults in a child's life and other children in a child's life. And in fact, you know, I've got four children. They needed other children in their lives. You know, their siblings are not enough. And the impact that it had on them was was really profound. And I've had people say to me this week, someone in education saying, you know, I've really noticed these cohorts coming through now to university level. They're really emotionally immature. You're like, yeah, they are. Why is that then? You know, as if they just hadn't, they hadn't put two and two together about how that happened. And then, of course, you've got the, you know, the, the younger, the youngest children whose language development was harmed and, and in a measurable way where they weren't seeing faces. They weren't seeing the mouth movements. They probably weren't hearing people as much because, you know, if you're stuck with a very young child indoors all of the time, it's likely you're going to be a bit depressed and you're not going to be engaging with them in the way that you otherwise would be. And, and that has an impact on a child who only goes through that development stage once. You can't go back and sort of fix it. It's happened. And, you know, the, the, the painful when you think about it now, you know, grandparents talking to grandchildren through a window not being able to visit. Um, my, my dad was in hospital for some of that time and um, my mum could go and see him through the window because he, he happened to be on the ground floor. But of course, most people are in these hideously designed new hospitals we have now with, you know, they don't even have windows that open and it's it just, you know, the, the, the idea that you could be married to someone for 60 years and then, you know, at the most crucial time in the life, oh, you can't see him now. 
I know, I know, and that, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's I, really... I'm struggling to control to control not getting angry now. You know, I know. Well, and absolutely. my dad didn't understand. Didn't understand. Absolutely, and I mean, the, the thing is that that was, you know, that story and the story of people dying on their own as well. They, those stories are like multiplied across the country. It happened to a lot of people. And those people obviously were very, very vulnerable. And so we can't sort of point our finger at them and say, well, you should have objected and you should have said, you know, you should have made sure that didn't happen because they were at their most vulnerable. And it was the rest of us who weren't standing up for them. Well, you simply weren't allowed into, the, I mean, the hospitals wouldn't have let you in. And, and But the point is most of us believed now, looking back with outrageous naivety, it won't happen again. We believe that what our politicians and chief medical officers were telling us was necessary. And most people believe the rules. Now, some people in certain streets in, in London didn't obey the rules. They had parties after work. Yeah. Some people yeah. did. And, uh, but most of us, we, we, we obeyed the rules. Yeah, but while some of the, the elites were drinking wine, you know. It's some just... of the rules made absolutely no sense. They just made absolutely no sense. So if you remember in care homes like even as late as last year if there was an outbreak in a care home I mean, maybe this is still happening in some of them if there's an outbreak in a care home you can't come in and visit like hang on a sec H who's protecting who here right the outbreak's in the care home you're a young healthy relative who wants to come and see a relative that could potentially die and you're being stopped because of what exactly and these harms were predictable as well. It's nothing that you couldn't have worked out. I mean, I suppose at the time, a lot of us did realise it, but we just did what we were told because we accepted this narrative. It was only well, you know, more I think, informed thinkers such as yourself that saw through it. Well, I think a lot of us, you know, we, we, all of us, all of us outsource our thinking to trusted experts because mm. we, we can't do it all on our own. We just can't. And so you have to have people that you can trust. And the people that we trusted were lying <laughs> and so then you've got this sort of middle ground of people who should have been calling them out and that's the bit that failed like when you've got someone who's making an error in the position of power that can happen right deliberate or not that can happen but we have systems in place to call it out we have political opposition which didn't exist we have a media that were censored with the Ofcom guidance so that did they did not do any calling out and then, of course, we have all the other experts. So we have the medical profession, right? Should have been calling this out. And the trouble with the medical profession is that we also have our trusted experts. And medicine is a lot of knowledge to keep on top of all of the time. And so doctors are hugely reliant on these trusted channels of communication, whether they're from the colleges or from you know, guidance from the NHS or wherever it is. They need that to support their work and so if somebody comes along and says all of these things that you're doing to avoid having to do any work are deceiving you then they will just stick their fingers in their ears because they can't have that destroyed they just can't cope with that being destroyed because it requires them to then actually do the kind of level of work that they cannot do on top of their day job it's not possible to do it yeah. We started teaching research in about the 1990s in, in university and, um, you know, it soon became obvious really that, that most of the students didn't have the 
time or the ability to learn to actually interrogate a research paper properly, very superficially. So we just fell back on guidelines. What, what do the NICE guidelines say? And, and e e even in your own field, um, it's very hard to substantiate everything for yourself. We just accept it. I mean, I've actually measured the distance to the moon. Didn't get it quite right, <laughs> but that's probably about the only parameter in the real world. I've never measured the circumference of the Earth. No. I've never measured the distance to the Andromeda Nebula. You know, we, we just take these things on trust. Yeah, we do. And, and the trust is like more than one fold. We're not saying like this person said it, so it must be true. We're saying this person said it and all of the people who could have said that was wrong didn't say it was wrong. And now we think it's true. So, you know, there, there is there is that sort of feedback that we have that's so important, that feedback loop and the correction and checks and balances. And it's them going missing that was the really, really bad problem that we haven't fixed. That problem is still there. I love there's a Martin Luther King quote, and he said, in the end, in the end, what we'll remember is not the cries of our enemies. We expect that. He said, what we'll remember is not the cries of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Really quite profound that, um, that, you know, our friends, when we needed them, very often remained uh, silent. And of course, the ones that did speak very often weren't allowed to. They didn't make me the, the mainstream media narrative, which is a, a, another problem. So uh, incalculable ongoing harms from, from lockdowns. And then that's with and we're not even economists. I mean, I'm sure yeah, if we had an economist on, they could start talking now and stop talking yeah. next week sometime about the complete disaster. Yeah, I mean, I mean almost I, I, you could, before talking about any of the details, you can simply say wealthier societies are healthier societies. Yeah. You know, if you just look at the economic impacts alone, that's going to have a health impact. And yes. you don't do any complicated sums to figure that out. Yes. It's obvious. I mean, I can't remember numbers I've heard. Like, is it 400 billion or is it? It's just silly numbers. It is silly numbers. Silly numbers. Mm. But of course, it's not numbers. It's money we're going to be paying for the next 100 years, presumably. Yeah. And it's also the impact on the children who, you know, their, their earning potential, lifetime earning potential, all of them, that whole generation, has taken a massive hit. And that's, you know, that's going to have consequences for decades for the country. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go on to masks, Claire. I believe 10. Okay. I like this one. <laughs> I like this one because... I won't I, ask a question. <laughs> Just okay. <laughs> when, I was, when I was writing, I was trying to be um, a little bit personal and honest, right? Yeah, because sure. I wanted to engage people. And it's difficult doing that because you expose yourself and, you know, you open yourself up to criticism. And, this and one, your enemies will use any weakness that you indicate. Absolutely. And um, this one, you know, I'm totally exposing myself because I sewed masks, John, in summer 2020. I got the machine out. I picked out some pretty fabrics that I liked and I was busy stitching these masks. And um, and I look back on that now and think, well, what was I thinking about what I was going to achieve with that? And, you know, I think a lot of it was around this story of droplet spread, right? It's coming out the mouth spray. It's going to hit someone in their eye and cause him to be sick. And obviously a, a cloth mask would stop that. Yeah, um, yeah you can't and, spit at someone when you're wearing a mask, yeah. Uh, no, exactly. And so, you know, I could kind of see that that, that would make sense. Um, 
but obviously it's a total nonsense. It's a total, total nonsense. That's not how it's spread. And, you know, even I, I could almost have been persuaded that the, if you had the largest volume of virus in that globule of saliva, then stopping that would still have a benefit. Um, but actually that isn't where the most of the virus is. The vast majority of the virus is in the aerosols, not in these big globules of saliva. So it falls down on every count. Um, and the, you know, there were huge problems with, with people's beliefs around masks because it was, we were told lots of different layers of why they had to be worn. And people sometimes came out and are accidentally honest about saying it's to remind people to you know, you know, do their distancing and all of the rest of it, because you've got a sea of masks. Now, I know somebody who had night terrors. This is a grown man who had night terrors because of the masking. And he would wake up and like screaming because all he could see were these distorted faces as he was sleeping. Um, and, you know, obviously that's quite an extreme example. But the idea that a faceless, smileless society is good for anybody is just completely wrong because as humans we need to see you know when you've got a stranger coming towards you you need to assess the situation and if they've got their face covered you don't know if they're angry or a threat and so everyone becomes a threat you know, even if you're not scared of a virus suddenly people are now a threat because you haven't got that ability to have a sort of engagement or that feeling that they're not that they're safe or whatever else and so you've got these impacts from masking that people didn't talk about they just pretended it was benign minor intervention and and it, it wasn't it really really wasn't a minor intervention it was a really big deal sometimes i'm foolish enough to ride a motorcycle and uh you know you just wouldn't dream of going into a shop or a calf or a house with a full face motorcycle helmet on no. Just look like a criminal, and no, no yeah. one can see you. You just wouldn't dream of doing that. No. Um, and, um, and yet, this was just normalised. And this goes back to our hunter-gatherer times. You know that the whole reason we've got all these facial muscles is so we can communicate, but by this amazing non-verbal modality that we have, that we, and with oh. this amazing ability of the human brain that we learn when we're just a few months old to to read faces yes yes and, and just taking away that whole aspect of humanity it was yeah yeah i actually had a hospital appointment and i went to see a, a very competent consultant but he was wearing a mask all the time and um i was just left just so dissatisfied with the consultation yes yes yeah because you you that that actually that engagement with a doctor just wasn't there <laughs> No, and you think, well, what's the point? If you're just following a protocol, you might as well be a computer algorithm if you're not going to engage with people. And when, you know, a lot of the people, a significant fraction of the population who need care from a doctor are hard of hearing. Um, and, and, and yet doctors are covering their faces and making that communication harder. And there was one awful story of, I can't remember what it was, but there was some medical disaster that happened because the doctors couldn't hear each other properly the mask you think well you can see completely how that would happen and you know you can't just dismiss this as being a benign intervention it's not it's a, it was a major serious intervention that had no benefit and we now have a you know jenny harris who was deputy um chief scientific officer who said chief that, medical officer or something wasn't she yeah that's right sorry deputy chief medical officer she said that the masks you know, the evidence base for masking was that it didn't work and you might get it on your fingers if you keep fiddling with them and we shouldn't use them. 
and then said everybody's got to use them and now she's back to saying well we know the evidence base says they don't work you know what great so do we trust you at all in the next time to you know actually tell the truth no uh, let me think about that one claire um <laughs> uh, i'll have to get back to you on that particular doctor yeah um I so mean, we, we kind of it's so kind obvious of... you're breathing out the air's got to go somewhere right right it's and just so, so obvious yeah and you don't have to you know you can just feel the warmth from a, when you're breathing out of a mask. So it's coming out by your ears, right? You're just channeling the air to come out a different way. But in terms of the aerosols, you're still producing your pig pen-like cloud of aerosols everywhere you go. And anyway, you're healthy, and it's the sick person in their bedroom with their window open that's infecting everybody, not you. Um, and then besides that, do you remember we had a mandate in hairdressers that they had to, you had to wear a mask at the hairdresser meaning that the hairdresser is getting all of your air right in their face. It's not really, a problem, not really it. a problem I have, but yeah, I do remember, <laughs> do remember that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And the, I remember this ludicrous situation where you, 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 you know, in, in some restaurants, you, you could, when you were walking around, you had to wear a mask. When you were sitting at the table, you didn't. Yeah. It's just absurd. But everybody went along with it. And, and then the, the, the politicians had it the other way around. So when they were in the canteen, they could sit down and take it off and stand up and put it on. But when they were in the chamber, they would sit down and put it on and stand up and take it off. <laughs> like Simon says, just, it was ridiculous. Just, just make up some ar arbitrary rule. Yeah. Anyway, I think the important thing is we spoiled a lot of people's fun. So that's, that's, it wasn't all bad. And I love the way you draw the parallels with uh, Puritanism. Now, a lot of great things about Puritanism, but, but to be puritanical, of course, is, is a bit of a, a killjoy thing, isn't it? And uh, you, you yeah. draw the historical analogies with that, which uh, really, really brings the message home, I think it's... Uh... Well, yeah, and I think we did, I mean, thankfully, I think that the, that sort of zero COVID brigade, who were the real Puritans, who you know, said, yeah. we should eat in silence, and, and, you know, they, they were treating the spread of disease as a, a sin, essentially, yeah. and that, you know, you had to sort of deny yourself because of this sinful act. Um, and, but thankfully, that went away. Like, that went away when China tried to do the most brutal of lockdowns for that yeah. first Omicron wave yeah. in Shanghai. And they were, you know, people were locked in apartment blocks. They didn't have any food. They were screaming out the windows that they were starving and the world was watching. Oh, and they were also gathering up the pets to murder them. Um, yeah, so it was, it was just... I know, it's just so distressing. I just don't, don't even want to think about it. Yeah. No, it was as cruel as could be and it had no impact whatsoever because it's an airborne virus. I'm just thinking, um, would wearing hair shirts have reduced transmission? <laughs> I, think, I think if you were a zero Covidian, yeah, definitely. I mean, the more uncomfortable <laughs> you not? are, you know, if you're itchy all over, surely that would help a bit. Yeah. And of course, you couldn't, you know, couldn't play sport. You couldn't sing. You couldn't dance. Do you remember Walk the... outside on your own. Oh, yeah. There's <laughs> zero risk to yourself and zero yeah. risk to yeah, anyone so you... else. I don't know if you remember in, I think it was New Year's Eve of 2021, it must mm. have been uh, 2021 going into 2022 because yeah. of the previous one we were locked down anyway mm. and um, in scotland people were being arrested for dancing because the rule was you couldn't you couldn't dance you could go to a party but you couldn't dance um, and there were all the rules about weddings about you know you could have canapes oh, yeah. outside but you yeah. couldn't have music and dancing yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the distress of people not being able to go to funerals and things oh. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've just been reminded um, that the in in the Black Death, you know, sort of 1348 and subsequent outbreaks, there was a group of people called flagellants who went around whipping themselves to appease their distorted view of religion or whatever it was. But maybe there is something that's the people, these people that were flagellants were human beings just like us. So, so maybe there's something that's sort of innate to humanity that makes you think, well, if I'm in pain, it must be doing some good. I, it's, um, I just thought of that just then. It's just an interesting parallel with the flagellants of the, uh, of the 1300s. Well, yeah, I think there is so much truth in that. And I think that that has caused so much harm with, um, with the vaccines as well. You know, that, that belief around, well, you know, I, I'm going to take some days off work because I'm going to get my vaccine then. I know I'm going to be really sick. Now, why are you doing this to yourself? This is young people doing this themselves quite knowingly, knowing that they're going to make themselves sick because it's the right thing to do or something. Mm-hmm. You think, well, how sick do you think you're going to be if you don't do this? Because probably not sick. Yeah. Yep. We're doing well today, Claire. Should we go on to Belief 11? Children are tough cookies. Surely they didn't take any harm. Yeah. So this was the idea that children are resilient, which was yeah. this phrase that was just repeated banded about yeah yeah so whenever anyone was trying to raise a concern about children would be told children are resilient as if that made it okay and it just does not make it okay and you know that children are resilient what that really means is they carry on turning into adults right great but you know they're not good it doesn't mean that it doesn't have negative impacts on what kind of an adult they're going to be um and there are sort of different leagues of resilience and of course some children really aren't resilient. There's a whole you know, body of work on what makes a resilient child and some children aren't resilient and they're not resilient because they haven't got you know, good relationships, they haven't got the supportive structures, they've had other trauma. And those were the children who were most harmed by the lockdowns because they were already in those vulnerable positions. They weren't resilient. They didn't have resilience and they shouldn't have been dismissed as being resilient in order to justify harming them. It was just... The most appalling inversion of Ludicrous generalisation. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you know, the civilization of society can be judged by how it treats its weakest members. And um, the way we treated our children and the way we treated our elderly and the way that people were euthanised, there's no other way to describe it from the nurses I've been talking to in many situations. Um, I don't think we come out as being particularly civilised, but... Well, no, I, I completely agree. We, we fail that completely. And, um, and you know, the, the battles that people have had, so people like Molly Kingsley for Us For Them, who's been mm. campaigning throughout for children really successfully. But the battles she's had to fight over it are just extraordinary. I think these are the, what she's saying is obvious. And it's, you know, very clearly sort of the ethical standpoint that the vast majority of the population would be, you know, claimed to hold for themselves. And yet she was just up against opposition at every point of the way. And the, the big one was that when the um, COVID inquiry did their preliminary terms of um, reference, you know, what are they going to investigate? Children didn't yeah. get a mention. It's not there. Quite a few things aren't there, not allowed to be discussed yeah. in that inquiry. Yeah. I mean, they've added children in after Molly campaigned, but as an afterthought that still hasn't been discussed yet. And, and, and it's not psychobabble to say that there can be long-term effects from childhood trauma. It's, it's... No, completely, completely. And these children have, like, I mean, I, I did not see 
I did not expect to see the kind of harm that we saw, right, with children, because you kind of, because as an adult, several months of doing something slightly differently, you just, just, you know, you just get through it and you carry on. But a year in a child's life is a really, really big deal because each year has its own milestones and each child has had one or other of these years just completely destroyed for them and that has a different impact on different kids. So the one, the, the sort of impact I've seen a, a lot of harm with is children who were in year eight or year nine. So then in that phase of secondary school where you're sort of, you, you, you kind of go over the novelty period of your first group of friends and you're trying to find your real friends. And that bit was taken away. Yeah. yeah, that bit was just taken away from them. And so their social skills are just not, I mean, some of them are up, they've recovered and they're okay, but some of them, it, I think that made a big difference and it might well be lifelong for those children. And the other great thing you do in your book, Claire, again, talking about the concepts and what was going on. Um, now, there's this unit that was known as the nudge unit, but you, you, you describe it as covert psychological strategies unit, which is such a much better description. I mean, nudge has got a bit of Monty Python to it, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink sort of thing. But it's not that. This, this is government sponsored psychological manipulation. It is. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it was covert. It was it was it was done. This was on the quiet. This was, it was you know, it's. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, and we're talking about the British government here. You know, it's it's frightening stuff. So when the inquiry were interviewing the members of the nudge team, as it were, the mm. behavioural scientists, um, at the end, the um, Dame um, Hallett said that she really appreciated all that they'd tried to do, and you know, it was a shame it hadn't all sort of come off the way they'd hoped. You're like, really? Is that what the inquiry is going to conclude about behavioural science? Is that they scared people, and if only they could have scared them a bit more, or if only they could have just, you know, it was awful what they did, awful. And of course, Susan Mitchie, who was the one that was representing behavioural science on the BBC the most, you know, she was the sort of figurehead of that group. She now works for the WHO. I think, oh, right, headhunted to that. So what have they got planned for us then? Well, let's hope the World Health Organisation aren't planning on covert psychological strategies. Well, yeah, we don't we really don't want them. We don't want them anywhere. Right. So I guess one of the more disturbing things I realized when writing that book was that after the swine flu um, 2009 problem, yeah. I'm not going to call it pandemic because that's yeah. a ridiculous word for it. But the problem we had then afterwards in, in quick time, actually. So Dame Deirdre, Deirdre Hine wrote her report within a year of it all happening. So not long enough to have sort of seen some of the problems that happened, like the narcolepsy. But in her conclusion, she's quite brutal about some of the modelling, some of the decision making that was went on. But about the behavioural scientists, she said these could have been put to better use. <laughs> really? That's a very English way to put it. Well, she thinks they should have just tried harder and done more. And then oh, right. next time oh. round, they did. They did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we won't go on to the narcolepsy, but that, that was a complication of the swine flu vaccine from... That's it, yeah. Yeah. 2009. Which took, and the thing is, the time frame to have all of that come out actually took years. Um, you know, you don't yeah. find out these things straight away. Yeah. And the other distressing thing that uh, this is one of the main problems I have with mainstream media at the moment. I, I, I think it, it's divisive. And uh, we end up with what you've in your book. Again, you just put your finger on it so accurately, Claire. Tribe, tribe formation. 
yeah um, we ended up with people with a, a particular belief that were and, and they actually believed they were doing the right thing and that led them to criticizing other people and uh, did you, yeah. just, just 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 to take a minute just sketch out what did you mean by tribe formation so you know as you've described what you know, once people have sort of decided where they're going to stake their put their stake in the ground and who they're going to believe then then they sort of amplify that you know they end up being um and 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 only listening to those voices because it reinforces what they want to believe and i think it was probably more extreme in some ways in the states because the there was a political divide that was quite clear around these things that we didn't really have here here it was pretty much cross party in terms of the opposition but there it was very much republican opposing yeah they were, they were equally useless yes <laughs> and but also the dissenting voices were from a spectrum as well Correct. as the, yeah. the, the, the dissenting voices weren't from a political political <laughs> no, persuasion right whereas that was not true in america so you had this situation where um if you remember the the maskers were you know democrat and then they when the vaccines came out and biden was trying to persuade people who are vaccinated that they could take their masks off and people didn't know what to do because they said, well, if I take my mask off, people are going to think I'm a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> they had, people had T-shirts made and masks made that said, not a Republican. You know, so they could take their mask off and say, not a Republican. If it was ridiculous, just ridiculous. And then you think, well, this is actually, if, if that's what it is for you, if your mask is a political statement now, uh, It's kind of a virtue signalling thing, isn't yeah. it? It's a t yeah, it's more than a talisman. It, it becomes a, yeah. you know, it's a part of your religious belief. A religious it, symbol almost, yeah. It is, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it really is a pity that uh, we don't have strategies that unify populations much more than unite them. Yeah, so we've got to a funny point now, though, haven't we, that people have been divided on so many different dimensions yeah. that it's actually much, much harder to find a tribe. Right, because yes. any tribe... Gets smaller have, and smaller. Yeah, and so within your tribe, you're going to have a load of people that disagree with you on something. Now, I think this is brilliantly healthy. I don't think this is necessarily the intent of the people dividing us, but if we get divided into smaller and smaller units, you start to see quite clearly that we're all units of one. <laughs> and that there isn't somebody that's going to agree with this on absolutely everything. And that if you are a right thinking person, you won't agree with yourself historically on absolutely everything either. And so once you've got to that point in time, you can start engaging with people again and trying to learn from them. I and emphatically so, disagree with myself 20 or 30 years ago and things I thought, taught and yeah. believed then are completely wrong. Yeah, well, quite. And that shows that you're a scientist, John. <laughs> It, show, it shows I follow government guidelines for a long time, unfortunately. But of oh, course, okay. we, when you're in the health service, you have to. Yeah, you, you know, do. If, if, if I was doing lectures that contradicted nice guidelines, I wouldn't have lasted for very long. Yeah, which is just so awful for patients because it just means that you're being channeled through a system where a doctor can say this protocol isn't right for you, but only if they can prove it. Yeah. You know, if they can provide the evidence that you, you're not suited to it so they can defend themselves and they and can, only if they're very brave as well. Yeah. But if they can't actually come up with, you know, if the evidence that you're, it's not suited to you is ethical or moral or personal choice, that becomes much harder. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, I, 
so, so good the way you just put your finger on it and say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It is tribe formation. I see it now, yeah. So the, la the, la the last belief, Clay, you've, you've done amazingly well here. Um, <laughs> stayed in this interview till Believe 12. Um, zero COVID was achievable. I mean, that was the initial thinking, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. And, and the thing clearly, is, patently not. Just... Patently not. That's the thing. It was patently not. So, you know, the, the argument that you know, we have, in theory, rid the world of two diseases ever. Right. So there's smallpox. And, you know, I mean, even right, there's smallpox. And then there was rinderpest, which is a, a, a I can't remember what kind of animal gets it. What, what, what is that? Well, I don't know. It's a viral disease in some kind of herding animal. Oh, OK. So it's some sort of animal virus. Right? I didn't know that one. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I mean, the and, smallpox and one is genuine. I mean, it's 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 alive in Port and Down and a few other places like that. You know, but uh... the smallpox, I do find quite a, quite an interesting topic. And, and I don't have the answers on it all, and I haven't looked into it in that much depth. But the story we were told is that smallpox is a really stupid virus, right? So it's very, very slow. It has a 14-day incubation period before you become infectious. And then when you, during that incubation period, you're covered in pox. So, like, it's really, really obvious to the world around you that the diagnostics is easy. You don't need a test, right? There's someone with smallpox. And so people would go and do what they called ring vaccination, where they would find the person with pox and inject the vaccine, all the people within that group, so that they were then immune. And so they were, by the, time, you know, by the 70s, really, smallpox only existed in part, little pockets of rural Africa in the jungle, and these, these WHO groups were going around doing this ring vaccination. And then they declared that it had been eradicated. There was a sort of six month period where they didn't have any. And they said, right, we've done that, that's eradicated. And around that time, monkeypox appeared in the rural areas of the jungles of Africa. And the monkeypox is clinically indistinguishable, except that there's apparently sometimes more lymphadenopathy. But, but you know, sometimes more lymphadenopathy, you can't distinguish it clinically. And it responds to the same vaccination and it's a very, fairly similar virus. It, they use a smallpox vaccine against yeah. monkeypox, yes. Um, and, you know, the argument would be that on an electron microscope they look different and that genetically they're different. But I, I'm not completely convinced by these arguments because this, this, for a start, what you're comparing it to is laboratory-based smallpox, which has been in a lab in cells for long enough for it to be genetically different. And second of all, the other, the, the other source of smallpox genetics is from, uh, I think it was an Icelandic girl who was found in the ice from 17-something who had of smallpox. And they've got this sample that was quite well preserved. They've got the genetics of smallpox from that. But that genetics doesn't look much like the one in the lab either. So, you know, I'm not really convinced that monkeypox is so very different from smallpox. Yeah, and, and the, vi the viruses change over time and diseases, yeah. diseases, co diseases come and go. I mean, right. I might be wrong, but I do think that that story yeah. was overhyped. It, 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 it's it's a uh, it's a good story. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. but it's... And I mean, ultimately, smallpox disappeared from the Western world with sanitation yeah. and nutrition. Sanitation and nutrition yeah. made enormous impacts on that disease, um, absolutely huge impacts. And the, in the UK, people were using variolation earlier on 
Yep. So they would, you know, doctors would go to find somebody who had smallpox and take some of the pus onto a rag of cloth. Variolation, actually giving people the infected pus. Right, infected pus, but infected pus that was in a little glass vial mm. in their jacket pocket mm. for weeks. Mm. <laughs> and then they'd find some child that wanted to be, you know, the parents wanted them variolated, and they would make an incision in the skin and shove some of this rag in. Some of them did it with a thread. They would thread it through with a needle and leave the pussy thread in. Now, that's a bacterial um, culture you've got there. Yep. The idea that you have somehow preserved virus in that pus, you, you've just put all sorts of nonsense into that yep. child. And so people would have all these rituals around praying to, so, so their child didn't die from this because some of them did. So you know, people were killing their children with this variolation to protect them from smallpox, yep. um, which meant that the smallpox vaccine was not just saving people from smallpox, it was saving them from this variolation ritual that they had that was horrific, really yeah. horrific. But the smallpox vaccine itself, originally in the 1700s, was um, they would collect what they called lymph from the cows, yeah. right? And they, had, they weren't keeping this in laboratory conditions. It wasn't refrigerated. It, and, and each one of these doctors would have their own special recipe and their own lymph. And, um, and yeah, that's what they would then inject people with. And actually, if you read Edward Jenner's original thesis, it's quite short. It's a few case reports. Um, and he's, he describes how you see, his opening line is, everybody knows that old wise tale that cowpox can stop smallpox isn't true because we've all seen, you know, milkmaids who've had cowpox and they've got smallpox afterwards. But I think I've discovered what will stop smallpox and it's a special type of cowpox. It's not your regular cowpox. It's a cowpox that's caused only in farms where the men clear out the dirty horses' hooves and then they come and milk the cow. So only where the men are sharing the milking and they leave behind a pox on the cow that the milkmaid catches and that protects them from smallpox. And I'm gonna call it horse grease cowpox. It's absolutely revolting and he wanted to cut out the middleman and inject the, the gunk from a horse's hoof directly into the children. That was his grand plan. And somebody saw that he had this idea that was going nowhere because people were revolted by it. And they thought, hey, this could be our route out of this horrible variolation nightmare. And they made him into this high priest and they absolutely you know, gave him tons of money, tons of money and prestige, and he went along with it. So the, the, the idea that he took the pus from, I mean, I remember the name, Sarah Nelms, and gave it to James Phipps, so that the cowpox pus was on the milkmaid's arm. Is that, is that a Oh, well, I think he did that. I think he did, he did do it. that. But the thing is, you see, with smallpox, um, as with all infectious diseases, not everybody was susceptible. So if you look at smallpox waves in epidemics across the world, yeah. it, you'd have a, a, a wave and lots of people would die. It wasn't really it could be lethal if you're malnourished and oh, have yeah. sanitation, but it wasn't that going through the whole population. It was going through a fraction of the population. So if you've only got you know, 10%, 15% who are susceptible to it, then when you're doing experiments to prevent it, you need big numbers. You can't prove you've prevented something with mm. a hand cases yeah 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 so basically um will we will we eradicate covid or 
Well, yeah. Well, what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years? There a little bit, didn't we? Um, so, you know, with no, 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 it's, virus, no, it's good stuff. Love it. With the respiratory virus in the air, you can't eradicate it because it's spreading through the air. And with respiratory virus that has multiple animal hosts, you can't eradicate it because it will still be in the animal reservoirs. And with a respiratory virus that has, you know, quite a short incubation period, you can't. So there's, there's like tons and tons and tons of reasons why it, it falls under the category of something that you can't do anything about. And the people who there was something very odd about the thinking of these zero COVID people. And it, and it was, you know, it was around this idea that um, that it was such a dirty thing that they wanted society rid of that, you know, they were there was something about it that was re disgusted them, I think. And, and so then they wanted to be obsessive compulsive about it. If only we could get everybody to all wear masks and to not talk to each other and to, you know, all of these things. And if only everybody would join in with what we're doing, then we could get rid of this thing for good. Do you think, well, no, that's complete nonsense. And of course, they would keep referencing New Zealand. That was always the reference point, wasn't it? New Zealand yeah. has shut their, their borders and they kept it up. But I think Jacinda Ardern actually said they could uh, they could be the first country, I can't remember yeah, what she said she now, but first country they... to eliminate the virus or something like that. Yeah, she did say that. And um, Just... to justify all sorts of horrific policies she was putting in place. Um, but if you look at the world as a whole, there was something going on in Southeast Asia and Oceania for the pre-Omicron variants. There was no exception, right? It didn't matter what the rules were in any particular country. You can't point to a region or a country that had a problem with the pre-Omicron variants. It just didn't take off there the way that it took off elsewhere in the world. And then Omicron comes along and they all try to keep it out. And you can't point to one particular country or region that kept it out. So this is not to do with human behaviour. This is a geographical phenomenon. Yeah. And I can't tell you exactly what it was. It's part environmental, like we were talking about those seasonal triggers before. It could also be immune related, you know, what other things have spread in that region, what other ecological aspects there are. So you know, the, the, the different animals that people are living alongside that are exposing them to different things that teach their immune systems. But it was a geographical phenomenon. It was nothing to do with human behaviour. Yeah, we've got these huge geographical phenomena, this huge seasonality. Mm -hmm. And um, we're, we're just passengers in that. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's kind of, the kind of, it, I keep thinking of all the experiments that weren't done that would have been so much more interesting. If people had managed to keep their heads and you could start to think, well, this is an opportunity now to learn all sorts of stuff that we didn't know before. So I think I talked to you before about the mucus lining and the respiratory yep. tract, right? And so... What is it that makes that fail in some people? That's a really important question we don't know the answer yeah. to. Um, and then you could also answer the question, well, if you take somebody from New Zealand and you bring them over here during a wave, mm -hmm. are they going to be susceptible? Or is, you know, so is it being in New Zealand or is it them? What's the, what's the yeah. factor there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or some of my mates from Uganda or Kenya, um, yeah. who, who most of them never even notice having it or had a minor cold or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which, you know, it's a place that never really has a problem with flu either. So well, the nearer you are to the equator, the less of a problem flu is. And, and, the, and the, the more spread out the trajectory of flu, you don't get these sharp spikes. And the further away you are, the sharper the spikes. So if you go right up to Scandinavia, 
then it's all compressed into the tiniest of time frames compared with even here. Interesting. So, so much to learn about the, these patterns of disease that we still don't. And diseases can come and go. I mean, I think I've got the year 1827 for the first, for James Parkinson, first identifying Parkinson's disease. Okay. Before that, it didn't seem to be in the historical record. You know, a lot of diseases you can go back and say, oh, this was probably this, that or the other. But Parkinson's disease doesn't seem to have been there. It seems to be a new disease and other diseases. I mean, when, when, I, when I was a junior psychiatric nurse, um, we used to have uh, p patients with uh, catatonic schizophrenia. And now the disease just seems to have disappeared. I'd always assumed that was that was drug related like no, no there was there was a group we were, so in schizophrenia they were called simple hebephrenic paranoid or, or catatonic mm -hmm. and we had these they were, they were old at the time but they were catatonic they were called catatonic schizophrenics and they would take it they would adopt a, a bizarre posture there was only mm -hmm. a few of them left when i was then they, they were pretty old this is the mid late 70s but the the, the the older staff used to tell you about them they'd stay in a particular position lying mm -hmm. cross-legged on the floors and then all of a sudden they'd have like I'll like jump up and have a manic episode right um i, I don't think it's being treated with no medication. no no because it, i mean chlorpromazine came in 1957 and it predates mm -hmm. that so okay. I, I i think it's an expression of institutionalization in some way or, or there are chemical changes in the, the the way that we interact with diseases um but it, it is strange that it just seemed to have come and it's all very strange, but of course psychiatry is a nightmare anyway. It's, it's defined yeah, by it's what's in the diagnostic, diagnostic and statistical manual. Oh, completely. The diagnostics <laughs> is, is, a, is a... I mean, it's easy to say it's a mess, but I don't know how to do it better. You know, it's one, it was yeah. just a challenge. It's a challenge, yeah, yeah. I would say. Yeah, um, but with the a... Parkinson's disease, I'd have assumed that was because people were putting them into a broader bucket of something else. So you can always have a new disease if you're, if you're chopping up your buckets into smaller fractions. No, I, th I think Parkinson's disease probably is a specific toxic effect on the substantia nigral cells. Right. Um, there, there does seem, because we can duplicate it, there's various yeah. toxin models that will, will cause it from, um, you know, poorly produced design and opiates, for example. Um, have caused outbreaks a famous case called, called the frozen addicts so it could be it could be some product of industrialization there that's actually yeah. acting as some form of toxin and yeah. that's another concern you know the whole use of chemicals around the world is just terrifying and but that's a topic for another day okay um <laughs> claire we've covered your entire book now and i'm really grateful for the, taking the patients to do that and i, I really think it's important to while it's still in our minds, you know, to document this. I mean, the, the book is the, the ultimate documentation, but to talk about it, I think, is also quite an important uh, historical thing to do, really. So if you haven't got the book, do get it. The links are on there, as always. It really does explain things. And I'm, um, when, when's this next book coming out, Claire? And what's it about? Oh, John, that's such a tricky question. So I, I, I'm my own boss on this, and I'm, I've... I've sometimes really hard on myself about the fact it isn't already out um and i'm kind of quite occupied at the moment with getting the inquiry submission in yeah so i'm writing about um vaccines and treatments for the inquiry is it and called a shot in the dark they're spiked i've called it a, a shot in the covid dark yeah right. spiked and, i like it yeah yeah so i'm going to do that inquiry submission and then use that to finalize the book it's what yeah, yeah. we're, we're, we're going to put we're going to put the link to your sub stack as well claire so i know you put some ongoing things on there that are 
Yeah, do do that. Thank you. I I I um <clears throat> I um will try and use my substack more. Yep. Great. Dr. Claire Craig, pathologist, uh researcher, uh researcher into cancers and genetics, author and lots of other things that don't spring to mind at the moment. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time, Claire. It's just been is it, you know, it's just made sense of the last few years to me, and um, it's it's been enlightening, if if somewhat uh, depressing, but uh, quite a few of us now feel in a position where pre-warned is pre-armed, mm -hmm. so maybe we'll be a little less uh, trusting of various institutions and encourage a lot more free thinking. And if anything good has come from this, I think a lot of people are now genuinely wanting to look at the evidence for themselves. Yeah, I Which agree. Is, is the nature of scientific empiricism. It's all about the evidence. Yes. So thank you, Claire. Really appreciate it. Thank and, you um, ever so much for having me on, John, and for letting me talk to your audience. As soon thank as this you. new book comes along, needless to say, we'll be biting your hand off to come on. <laughs> as soon as, you, well, any time you'd like to, just uh, it would be great to have you. Thank you, Claire. Okay. Thanks, John. Thanks. <laughs>